Fuck. Welcome back to Hire Everyone, the podcast still without the effortlessly graceful voice of Nikki Simmons, who is still enjoying a very well-deserved maternity leave with her little baby. Uh, hi, shout out to you, Nikki, and come back to us soon, please. It is also the podcast today with Michael Yinger on the show, who, aside from running his own company on applicant software, is a virtuoso of all things hacking growth, meaning doing this first step of actually getting the job. And this episode specifically, we're going to talk about what we alluded to many times before in the show, the evil robot, the applicant tracking system, the ATS, which is often the first hurdle that you have to pass in the application process before actually being invited to an interview. Uh, Michael is here to share much of industry wisdom with us, so we are really stoked. It is also the Higher Career Podcast, a show full of wicked stories from the job market and experts showing us how to succeed in it. It's time to get unstuck, it's time to lead, it's time to change, or the other way around, and it's time to hit that funky beat. So let's go. Higher. We've got Michael in the virtual studio. I am thrilled. I'm excited. It's very early for Michael, 5 a.m. in Charlotte. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining us at this hour. And our audience is no stranger to this. We will ask you for a quick elevator pitch up some tall building in Charlotte. And you mentioned before that it's actually the Bank of America building. So off you go. The elevator button has been pressed and you've got your moment. Well, good morning and good afternoon. Well, it's still morning for you. I'm happy to be here. Yes, the tallest building in Charlotte, Bank of America. Uh, I uh, I can see quite a bit from there. I've been in this space now for about 20 years, and so it does give me a perspective on what goes on in the world of talent acquisition at all levels, and uh, happy to be here chatting about it. That's perfect. So, Michael, we, I'm really giddy to have you uh, to have you on the show because we've spoken about this in jest so many times in so many different episodes. Uh, but just quickly, dear audience member, as per usual, just as a quick tease, we have asked Michael to retain some of his most prized and most practical information and top tips until the end of the episode to, uh, well, naughtily encourage you to listen to the whole damn thing and. Don't zoom forward because I will find out about it. But let's dive straight into it. So to our listeners out there who have been with us from the beginning, um, you will have heard us talk about this a million times. For most jobs you apply to, there will be an evil robot or more formally an applicant tracking system screening your application and sorting it into the yay or nay pile before a person of flesh and blood ever lies eyes on it. So what we haven't discussed, however, is what these systems are exactly. And so, Michael, enlighten us. What is the applicant tracking system? What is it intended to do? And why do companies increasingly use them? The uh, that's such a great question, because that, particularly because there's so much discussion about, as you say, the evil ATS, and we should get rid of the <laughs> ATSs. Back in the day, for some of us, before there were ATSs, how did you keep track of people that you were hiring? How did you keep track of the candidates? Well, you had spreadsheets or you created folders in Outlook or some other uh, ridiculous mess. The ATSs were created in recognition that there are 
not only obligations, but efficiencies necessary when you're dealing with large number of candidates or large number of hires. Right. And so that's, you, you saw in the early days that a lot of this was done independently. And then what's happened over time, of course, is some of the big system vendors have developed an ATS uh, or bought an ATS to be part of their end-to-end uh, uh, enterprise suite. So the purpose, it, it ostensibly is to keep track of what's going on in the hiring process. Again, what has evolved over time is actually having the ETS become part of the decision-making. This is what you were alluding to, Tom, some of the mm-hmm. decision-making in the hiring process. Some do this more um, obtrusively than others do. Some don't do it at all, quite frankly. They simply exist to just be a tool to keep track of what's going on in the process. So a lot of the challenge with the ATS is not the system itself, but it's how it's implemented and how it's put together. And often, in spite of somebody's best efforts, it can become very complicated. And quite frankly, according to some of the studies that I've seen, the ATS can become involved, as as you alluded to, in the decision-making process to the detriment of the candidate eliminating or uh, ranking lower somebody based on whatever it is that the ATS is using. This is particularly true in this era of artificial intelligence, that Mm -hmm. there is the possibility that just based on the way the artificial intelligence is uh, set up, the algorithms that drive it, people could be placed in a lower status or, um, you know, determined to be unsuitable, again, based on the criteria. and it is possible that somebody won't see that uh, before it happens, as you right. said. The machine gets to them before the person does. Which I think is the big fear that most people out there actually have. It just it feels like you're, you're banging your head against a wall trying to get into that job that you know you're perfectly suited for. And what ends up happening is that you blame not having been inspected by a person who, upon closer inspection, would deem you worthy and completely appropriate. But before and for reasons that are often um, perceived to be formalities, so we all know about this, right? Read the job spec, figure out some stuff about the company, make sure that the right keywords are placed in your CV in the right positions uh, so that the ATS grabs you into the yay pile. However, that you don't do it so overtly that eventually it looks <laughs> like you've just copy and pasted the job description into your CV. So we will get into into this, how do you make the evil robots your friends um, in the latter half of this episode? But we can't talk about the applicant tracking system, or as Michael already mentioned, the ATS, without talking about the group of people whose lives they are supposed to make easier, which is recruiters. The group of recruiters, sometimes they call talent acquisition within companies, uh, is scouting out their four applicants either because they've applied or because they're available on the market for specific positions. So, Michael, in developing your software, you must have crossed paths with one or two of the, those recruiters, right? So, <laughs> in any endeavor, it always pays off to imagine the per- so the endeavor being getting a job uh, it always pays off to imagine the perspective of the party at the other side of the table so from your experience michael what do recruiters care about when they look at applicants how do they filter what the ats lets through and more importantly what are one or two tips you may have for our listeners on how to make the recruiters pay attention to the application 
You're right. The recruiters are are so critical to this process. Uh, even today, it's interesting to talk to recruiters who have access to these to the screening aspects of an ATS and yet choose not to use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you ask them, well, why is that? Well, because it doesn't return good results. The challenge is these systems that do this automated screening learn based on how people are screened in or screened out. And if the recruiter is choosing not to participate in the learning, Mm -hmm. which means feedback, which means extra work, extra steps, it's possible that this uh, bot is not being uh, programmed in a way that that is suitable to the candidates. Right. So the the what are recruiters looking for? They a, a good recruiter has scoped out what the what critical requirements are on part of the hiring manager, right? As part of the initial conversation uh, that sometimes takes place, sometimes doesn't. Depends on the volume of work the recruiters have. Also depends on the kind of process that, that the company has decided to put in place. And so a recruiter will be doing screening not only with the ATS, but sometimes on their own. You, you talked about these sort of different origins of the candidates that sometimes Candidates are coming in because the recruiters know them or the recruiters have been doing some passive sourcing. Mm -hmm. So those folks are being screened more by the recruiter than they are by the system until they become part of the system. And so the idea is how do you how do you create a scenario so that the recruiters are consistently screening all of the candidates? And that's very difficult. You know, you you think about what does it take to screen a resume? If you're, you know, if you got 10 resumes, well, you're going to be pretty thorough. You're actually going to read it, you know, Uh, but if you've got 50, are you actually reading every one of those? Well, of course not. You're looking for, well, what the job titles they had, or do they have this particular skill? Um, Maybe there's a geographic issue and you need somebody who's local. So you're looking at at whether they're in the same, you know, general vicinity as the company. But what if Mm. you have a hundred resumes? What if you have 500? Well, you don't, you know, you, you do a quick skim, you pick out, you know, you, you do your yes and no pile and you, you end up perhaps ignoring people because the resume isn't put together in a way that makes it easy to screen. So something could be missed. It's a real challenge for the recruiter these days, this varied format that resumes come in. They could be skills first. They could be jobs first. They could be experience that's unrelated to the chronological order of the job. There's so many different formats that get advocated. You want to get through to the recruiter, make your resume easy to read. There was a period of time where the appearance of the resume was so critical. And I'm not talking about spelling because that's always important or grammar because that's always important. It was you know, was it the right color to pop out? Did you have, you know, interesting things on it? Because people were looking at pieces of paper, right? Well, they're not looking at those pieces of paper anymore. It doesn't matter how sophisticated your graphics are. They're going to be lost. (laughs) It's not going to be, you know, particularly if the applicant tracking system does the parsing of the resume into the various components, they're Mm. not even looking at your resume. They're just looking at at what the ATS has been programmed to parse out and how that appears. And that's probably going to be jobs. It might be skills, but it's certainly not going to be what's in your resume. The the best thing you can do is make your resume easy to read, 
And I won't advocate that you do jobs first or skills first, as long as it's well organized so that all the skills are in one place, all your jobs are in another place. It's easy to, to figure out where, you know, how to get a hold of you. It's surprising the clever things people try to do to, for example, to highlight their email address, but then the system can't read it because it's in a box and yeah. it says you know, something and it, it's, we, we go to these ends, we think to, to highlight ourselves, but in the end, what we do is, is we potentially knock ourselves out because it's difficult for someone to review that resume. Now, mm -hmm. the systems don't care. The challenge of a, of a resume, as far as an ATS is concerned, is it, if the resume is difficult to read or difficult to understand, the parsing tool will not parse it appropriately into the resume. Well, what does that mean to the candidate? Generally, it means that then you, as the candidate, actually have to go in and fill out that whole lengthy application. That's man it. Manually. You know, this whole idea of labor saving for you, the candidate, is lost because the system can't read your resume because it, perhaps it's because it's all over the place. Now, that's not to say the parsing tools are very good. Some of them are, some of them aren't. It's a, tif it's a difficult concept to say, you know, how do you distinguish between what's a resume and what's a letter, letter of introduction mm. or, you know, what's a spreadsheet of your favorite restaurants? <laughs> that's, that's where we're at. And people load those things by mistake. Or, or their resume, they think they're being um, very cautious and they send their resume as a PDF, except what they've done is it's not actually a PDF, but it's it's a picture, right? Correct. You can, yeah. And and that can't be read at all because no. it's just after all, it's a picture. It's not text. It's Which tough. Is, yeah. It's tough. No, it's a complicated a thing, eh? Yeah. Because what I'm what I'm you always want to strike this balance because in the event of an actual person actually looking at your CV and you will see that you know hiring managers. Um, of a certain, I want to say, caliber or experience, speaking about age, they will still want to see printout in front of their desk yeah. so that they can go through yeah. it with a magic marker and have a quick, you know, have a quick look. So to them, it still needs to be easy to read the six second screening rule and look as if you've actually put effort and work into it. It's quite funny about uh, this concept of how you organize and I want to say design your information that reflects on the kind of effort that you've put into creating your CV. At the same time, and you've mentioned this, um, when you apply, especially to larger companies, oftentimes they will give you the option. They will, they will require you to do both. Upload your CV and the tool that um, handles the upload will auto-populate um, a digital version of your CV. And annoyingly, at least to me and my frustration, I will then have to go in and very manually recreate my CV entries as I would like them to be read. Um, so quick follow-up question on this. Is that a good um, test for the machine readability of your CV if this initial system grabs your information and sorts it into the right buckets? Is that like a good, basically a free tool that you can use to check um, whether an applicant tracking system can actually handle your CV formatting, Michael. Uh, that's, that's precisely what it is. You can tell oh, very quickly what what's going to happen. Uh, you know, the, the, the part about looking at the paper, uh, you know, a hard copy. Yeah, mm. that's true. I get that. Of course, remembering that the hiring manager is, is probably only looking at three to five. Yeah. May, maybe I can 10. confirm. Yeah, maybe <laughs> 10. Yeah. And so the other thing to think about is you don't know whether the hiring manager is actually going to see your CV or 
they're going to get some printout from the ATS that has something that maybe resembles your CT. So it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. And again, it just goes to simplicity. Um, I just, I give, uh, can I give one little tip? Of course. <laughs> This this is something I've learned from my my own resume because I you know I run it through systems now and again to see what's happening and and to do testing on our system. I have, for example, I have a company that I worked for and I had four different jobs with that company. So I have the company and then I have each of the jobs underneath it separately, but but not uh, as subsets, not as mm-hmm. individual jobs. And so very often the ATS will pick up the, the first company. And it will pick up the entire span of my experience there, and it won't know what to do with those other three. Mm-hmm. And so I have to then, if, if I feel it's necessary, again, this is just for testing, I would have to go in and adjust all four of those positions so that yeah. they work. So if you've got positions, let's say you work at a company and you were there several years, and there is a reason to distinguish between those positions, distinguish between them, set them up separately. Sure, you can use the same company name and different dates, and that's okay. Yeah. But make sure that it's it's clear that these were unique, distinct positions. Otherwise, it, it's going to garble it, and you're going to have to go in and fix it manually. Top tip. This is an amazing insight. And for those of you out there not familiar with programming and the different headlines that um, m- machines enjoy using... Think about your Word document. And if you want to format a Word document, it always gives you the option to introduce headline one, headline two, headline three. So the text gets bigger and smaller. Oftentimes, this is a good way to orient yourself through the document. It seems really dull and it seems basic because it's a Word document. But these are cues in the code behind the document that most likely programs like the ATS will also pick up on to segregate and separate the entries in your Word file. So rather than um, working with, you know, five colored in bubbles to talk about your your language um, certifications, be specific and use words because this is what, uh, what machine learning is currently uh, going for the most. But... Um, Michael, it still may feel as if there is an invisible and malicious yeah. force between you and your dream job. And worse, it's an, it's an inhuman and maybe even perceived an inhumane one. But the ATSs of this world don't only have a role to play in streamlining a company's recruitment process. They help balance out unconscious biases that we all carry within us. So I'm talking about recruiters. And they might help companies hire more so on actual merit rather than on perception of merit. So what is your take on hiring biases and malpractice? Sure. That is something that that particularly uh, the earlier ATSs really focused on. And that's not to say the ones today don't focus on it, but it's, it's in a different kind of context. Mm. Often a, an ATS will have the ability to either deliver or not the gender and ethnicity of the candidate. Right. That's, that's a configuration choice. And large companies have learned that the appropriate thing to do is to mask that from the recruiter. Now, uh, then you say, well, but name can sometimes give a clue as to mm. uh, ethnicity and, and sometimes even clue to, to gender, although not that's not a, um, as, as easy to pick up. Mm. And so there are actually tools out there that that take this a big step further that 
that actually strip the candidate record of any sort of identification, takes the dates off, mm. takes the company names off, takes you know the school names off. And so you're left with nothing but the, the raw skills and, and experience. That's an interesting, I sat through a pitch on one of those kind of tools and it's, and it's an interesting kind of approach to make things as um, unbiased as possible. The challenge that companies face, this is not a candidate problem, it's a company challenge. No matter how much effort you go to, to remove the bias from the initial screening and selection process, which is to say, you know, making sure that your ETS isn't, isn't deselecting people based on something other than skills and, and experience, you still have people making decisions. And uh, I, I've seen this in, in my career where we mm. would present consistently a balanced slate of a mixture of genders and ethnicities, and the, the hiring results would not match the balance of the slate, so to speak. Right. You, you have people making decisions, right? It's difficult to get past individual decision-making other than through training. And through observation on the part of the company, there's, there's not much a candidate can do about this. It really does fall to the company to ensure mm. that if they are genuinely interested in balancing their uh, diversity, they have to be monitoring it. They have to be measuring it. They have to be training people on how to get past those unconscious biases that are built into us. The systems have a struggle with that as well. If you've got a system that is selecting and deselecting uh, based um, on the, its algorithm, how is that algorithm coded? Is anybody watching the output of that algorithm to see if there's a trend that mm -hmm. wasn't intended? And so it comes back to you. You it, it may be going into this sort of black box and coming out the other side. This stream of candidates. Are you paying attention to ensure that the system itself isn't? moving people out. Again, I, I talked early on about the fact that, that these systems learn mm -hmm. based on the behavior of the people who are using them. Again, it, it, unconscious, and they can be uh, adjusted pretty quickly. I think that the most um, uh, perhaps humorous, but certainly um, egregious case was uh, a few years ago, Microsoft put out a chatbot just to test, right? They, put, they exposed it to the market. Within eight hours, right. it was spouting somewhat crazy things based on the fact that people went in and deliberately tried to get the, the, you know, tried to train it, right? Because it was untrained and they did. They demonstrated the risk of these systems, which is, you know, so there's, there's a, a lot of debate around how do you manage these systems? I, I read an article recently, most very interesting about just the whole philosophy of how do you create an unbiased uh, artificial intelligence system? Whose definition of unbiased mm -hmm. is there? Is there an unbiased definition of unbiased? It's an interesting challenge, and it relies. In the end, I believe that it still relies on us, the people in the loop, so to speak, to be watching the output and ensuring that you're getting the kind of results that you expected to get, mm -hmm. and the kind, of, the kind of results that you want to get right? Assuming you're Correct. moving in a certain direction. Those are two very different things, aren't they? What you want and then what you expect. And you got to be paying attention.
I'm with you. This is something that we mention sometimes in the sidelines of our episodes, but also in dedicated episodes around the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the workplace, and specifically something that we talk about, which is minority representation. And it's quite... Um, it's a finicky process because that term is often used also for, um, you know, for for, uh, uh, for for women at work. We're on a global scale in world population view, they're not a minority at all. But for some reason, in specific levels of organizations, um, they remain a minority and are underrepresented. Um, and how to how to address this issue through depending on where you are geographically speaking because all of a sudden you have organizations and companies that uh, almost try to put quotas in place in an area where they need local talent uh, where it's much more difficult um, to source diverse talent because not because of biases but simply because they're just not there yes Uh, because they're just not there and it starts to become an issue Um, and this eternal question between uh, how do you ensure that you hire by merit and the person that is just simply the best for the job while, and as you mentioned, presenting a diverse pool of potential applicants and then ensuring that this diversity is not being corrupted by unconscious biases. It's it's a, a job for another episode. And I would say <laughs> um, for anybody out there listening, this is something that Nikki and I will tackle in um, in June in a dedicated episode to talk specifically around education. Um, on unconscious biases um, right. within your companies and what you as an individual can do as well to help your companies along. But in this particular episode, we want to get a little bit practical. So this is where it gets juicy. How do we make the robots our friends when looking for and trying to get our dream job? So we have discussed many times that our application documents are not the only ingredient that makes or breaks the dish. Your online presence, the people you know, your ability to network your way towards that dream job. But they are inarguably the way to wedge that foot in the door and enter the conversation. So let's do a little simulation, Michael, all right? Imagine you see job X um, for company Y online, and you want to shape a CV that will get you past the ATS. How would you go about that? Think about format, think about wording, language, the kind of research that you need to do, matching the job description keywords to your CV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a side question, and this is the biggest question on the planet, are there any big no-nos that we should definitely look out for as we compose our CV for this application? Well, I'll do I'll do at least one no no right up front. Make sure it's it's accurate. Mm. That's the uh, that's the tricky part. Uh, you know, you mentioned early on about pasting a uh, pasting your resume and the job description together. I actually had a, a candidate do that. We discovered it through through our our tool. They took the job description, pasted their CV on top mm. of it, and then turned the text white for the job description. So you couldn't see that it was there that way. They ensured all the keywords were buried in the document. They just weren't visible to the human eye, but certainly mm-hmm. the machine picked them up. And that's what was puzzling to us. It says they have this skill, but this skill doesn't exist anywhere on their resume. How is that possible? Well, there you go. It's, you know, they kind of figured it out. So you, you, I, I, you hit on most of the big things. Ensure that the skills that they're looking for are present in your resume. This the it's so easy if if the person who's screening says, I need five years of Java, and mm. 
you've got Java, but it's you've got it in the skills section. They can't tell how long you used it. Well, one of the common things that that people look for is skill with Microsoft Office Suite or mm-hmm. Google these days is also a contender. Well, I don't have that anywhere on my resume because of course I use Microsoft Office because I use it all the time. But if they're asking for it, make sure that it's there. That the 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 the, the nuance that people miss even today with this mismatch in terms of job seekers and available positions, mm-hmm. which is to say there are a lot more available positions today than there are job seekers. If you don't have it on your resume, how is somebody going to know it? It doesn't matter whether you've got the skill. Mm. You've, it's got to be reflected. If they're looking for project management skill, it should say that either you were a project manager or you exercised responsibility as a project manager in, in this project. Those are the kind of things that you, you really have to highlight so that you don't parrot the job description. You ensure that you're ticking all the boxes. I, you know, I've, I've seen recommendations even that you, you go, literally you go through the job description and you tick off. Did I, do, do I have this? Do I have this? Do I have this? Because it's, it's all too easy to look at a job description and say, well, I don't have this on my resume. Well, then how are they going to know that you've got it? So it, there really, it, there's an exercise. It, it seems so simple to us now, right? A job application, you know, job comes through on one of our feeds, through an email, through right. a text message. Oh, I'm just going to throw in my resume. Well, that, that what are they going to do? They're going to just throw it right out unless you've actually taken the time to ensure that your resume matches. In today's world, it still is important that you take the time to ensure that you are not only a match in your mind, but also a match on your paper. I know it's not literally paper on your CV, because the match in your mind isn't going to be picked up by the machine. It's only going to be what's the match on the CV. Mm. And it just seems, you know, if you're applying to, you know, well, you know, I'm applying to 25 jobs a day. Okay. Um, Are you actually doing the homework necessary <laughs> to show because you see here comes the secondary screen right when when you get to a person does your resume reflect what you know let's say you get past because there's a you know different maybe there isn't a machine screen right maybe everything is coming right to the recruiter and the recruiter is having to do their screen does your does your record your history actually reflect what they asked for cuz there's there's not another subtlety. There's again nothing a job seeker could do about it. There's what they've asked for, and there's what they're looking for. Correct. Yeah. Because when was the last time a job description was rewritten? Again, that's that's beholden on the company, not the job seeker. But all too often, you know, mm-hmm. particularly in this era of perhaps the world of work has changed a bit, and you know, hybrid and, and such as that. But were the job descriptions rewritten for a uh, post-COVID world? Mm-hmm. Likely not. You know, these things, pardon me, these things get embedded in the uh, HR system. Does anybody ever look at them? Uh, I worked with a company once that we were hiring 65,000 people for them, and they had 15,000 job descriptions. Well, how often do those job descriptions get rewritten? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and so, then how often are they really um, accurate once you're actually on the that's job? Right. This happened Is, to me with every single job that I've had um, within the first three weeks, uh, three months. <laughs> I would always request a rewrite of the job description that usually came along with a perk renegotiation because I said, this is not the job that I uh, negotiated my salary based on. So 
you know, we might have to actually look at modify, which is something that companies are incredibly unwilling to do because it oh, takes absolutely. time and it takes money. <laughs> but for anybody out there, I think this, these are words of wisdom, um, Michael. And I think the main takeaway here is to be a, and uh, we had somebody on the show last year who introduced us to this term, don't spray and pray your application. Yes. Be meticulous and find your groove. Eventually it will take you less because your CV is not a one-off thing. If it were, if it were a catalog of everything that you had ever done, then A, it would be completely unreadable. It would probably be seven pages long by the time that you leave university. So have what I do for myself. I have, for every position that I've occupied, I have a catalog of all of the things that I've done. For a new position that I want to apply for, I compare this catalog against the job description just to see do I actually have what it takes? Am I wasting my time? Anybody else's? And then between job description and this backend catalog, I compose the CV um, that is going to get me the job. I'm not not telling the truth. I'm just selecting from my experience that which is relevant to the actual job. Um, quick follow-up question here, because I know that this is a point of contention. On my CV, because I'm just thinking it's more easily readable real estate for any ATS, I have a quick paragraph at the top that sort of summarizes my personal elevator pitch. It's like three, four yep. sentences. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it, it's it's a traditional thing. The Of course, the machines ignore it because they don't know what to do with it. It doesn't have dates. It, you know, mm. Maybe it has some key words yeah. that the, the machine might be looking for. It's it's important because that's what's going to catch the eye of the person who's reading the resume if they're actually doing it. Now, there's, there, again, there's no guarantee. It's I think if if you look at at sort of current thinking around resume format, that's a pretty that's a, a pretty common element because of course for uh, for one thing we have mostly, although not entirely, gotten away from cover letters because cover letters are often not read. Yeah, uh, you know, occasionally you'll see an an actual ATS application that will ask for a cover letter, although those tend to be what's interesting is those tend to be the simpler systems, meaning the cover letter and the ATS are actually going into the system. They're not being parsed because there's not an application. It's just an uh, it's it's a, it's a way to gather that information from you that doesn't involve you sending it to them in an envelope, mm. which of course nobody wants. Uh, you know, where would you even send the envelope these days? <laughs> how would you how would how would you know that you're sending it to the right location? Because it, it's entirely possible. I I uh, was working with one company and their interview scheduling was done out of the Bahamas. <laughs> their, their resume view was done out of South Africa. That's and great. the the recruiters were in the country that it was so multinational. Recruiters were in the country uh, where the the jobs were simply because uh, you know the language issues. Mm. So how do you, how would you even know where to send a resume these days, right? No, it's, it's, <laughs> so you know again, it speaks to making it look good, making it looks clean, and mm. I that's it's it's a, it's a funny adjective, clean. Except that I think people, I think you, you understand, it's not cluttered, it's it's organized, it's neat. It's mm-hmm. easy to scan. Just think about it that way. Can can you look through your own resume in 30 seconds and find the things that the job description is looking for? If you can't, yeah. reorganize it. 
That's genius, brilliant. Because I think in in terms of priorities, think about structure, think about readability. If you find an, uh, a big company, just use one of their application masks to sort of you know, do a fake application, upload your CV, see how it gets populated inside of the system. It will give you a pretty good idea on that front. And then secondarily, think about is there anything that you can do that does not corrupt the readability, both for a person and the system, that makes it stand out visually? Because I can tell you the last time that I hired for um, for a group of interns, I was given paper printout. And mm-hmm. because, uh, yes, and because I'm a person, I also went for, um, and I tried not to, but I, in hindsight, um, I uncovered my own biases. And it had to do with one CV, for example, used design elements, but they were all... Um, and I got color printouts. Another question is it going to be printed out in color or in black and white. But it looked drab. It was very Morticia. It was very Adam's family. And I wanted <laughs> to have sparkle and yellow. So, um, yeah. but I think in terms of priorities, Michael, you're completely right. Look first for readability for both the purse and good structure. And look afterwards for small touches that you can make uh, to make your CV stand out from a bunch of you know PDF printouts in case it gets to that. But... Um, let's cruise on to the next question, Michael, shall we? Because hard skills versus soft skills. It's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a contested topic. And uh, both Nikki and, and who is not here today, and I feel that the conversation around them is changing. We are certainly advocates for what is called soft skills. Because to us, they're not soft at all. They're critical. They're much harder to teach than, say, making that Excel spreadsheet you know, look fantastic. And um, it's very, very tangible and noticeable if they're absent in a person. So such as curiosity um, in action, it's, it's uncovering avenue business avenues and ways to innovate. For us, this is a really hard and important skill that is often clocked away as something like attitude. But um, soft skills are, you know, all too often banished as um, to that little text box somewhere on your CV. You know, it's like a little side note. My soft skills are, I love puppies. And, you know, people don't pay them much heed. But the job description actually states them very explicitly quite often in the um, your experience section or what your profile should look like. So should we pay more attention to soft skills on our CVs, Michael? And if so, how? Well, <clears throat> pardon me. You, you've just you've hit on a real a real shift, and the challenge is if you're using a system to digest that resume, how do you pull out the soft skills? The mm-hmm. one way to deal with the soft skills is when you're talking about your experience. They, you know, the conventional wisdom says, "Well, numbers. What did you do? What did you accomplish?" And you can you can put some words in there that that relate to the kind of soft skills that you used to accomplish those goals. Mm-hmm. The reality is that most of the time the soft skills are relegated to either the interview or to references, reference checking, mm-hmm. which still does go on, although not nearly as prevalent as it used to be, or to an assessment tool. And this is something that companies are relying on uh, more and more in in terms of evaluating, do you have the kind of of soft skills that you um, are are necessary for the job? For example, with our tool, we have partnered with a company that measures human potential. 
And they've got a very simple diagnostic for doing this that's all scientifically vetted and whatnot. And so it, it allows the uh, applicant to go through a, you know, assessment. That's, it's, mm-hmm. Let's call it what it is. It's an assessment. There, there are many different assessments out there. And uh, I've seen it as extreme as, as one company put everybody through an assessment. And they had 25 different assessments, depending on the kind of job that you were applying for. Yeah, they were using the assessment as their initial screen. That in two ways. First, if you pass the assessment, well, then obviously you got to move on. Um, there's a there's a term. It's called green and clear. The three levels. You're you're green, meaning you you did really well in the assessment. You hit all the right. things they were looking for. Then there's clear, which you, you know you got through. You but you're you know you're not a ninety percenter. And then there's red, of course, where you didn't uh, get uh, hit the part parts that they wanted to hire. And so there's, there's two aspects of that. There's how did you score, but there's also, did you, did you actually go through it? It becomes a filter. Oh, I'm not going to take an assessment. Uh, it's too much time. Okay, well, great. Then you're not going to be considered at all, are you? <laughs> you just <laughs> self-selected yourself out. Maybe you're not the kind of person that that company wants. So very clever on the part of that particular organization in terms of how they were looking at it. Yeah. Although, although, you know, that can cause problems too. So the, if you're going to apply for a job, you got to have some patience with the the tool that they've chosen because that's the gate you have to go through. Now, if you don't like the tool, you don't like the way the tool is, is working. Okay. Well then don't complete it and self-select out, recognize that, you know, companies aren't perfect in terms of how these things are set up. This is not a, um, you know, a personal affront to you. <laughs> Somebody. Yeah thought about, or maybe didn't think about how this candidate experience was going to work. It may be indicative of the kind of company that you're going to work for. It may not be. Those are, those are things that are difficult to tell. And it just becomes another part of the application process. The app, you know, in, in an era when what we want to be able to do is just drop a, you know, something that we've pre-built into a, you know, into a slot and away we go. It, it's actually becoming more complex to apply for jobs. Yeah. It, but it really has, which is why this episode is dealing specifically with the ATS, but it's obviously part of a wider conversation about how to actually get to a job. And we've spoken about this before, for example, in Switzerland, where we are, the number that is being thrown around is that 60% of all jobs that go to people are never advertised. Although <laughs> in right. theory, right they would have to be. And then among the jobs that are being advertised the remaining 40%, oftentimes an internal candidate has already been shortlisted, but companies are required to run the recruitment procedure, uh, which is wasting everybody's time, but it's a legal mandate. So it certainly feels like it's very slim pickings, which is why the CV and knowing how to deal with the applicant tracking system is one element in your weapons belt. We've spoken about networking and connecting previously, about finding you know other ways and personal relations. And I don't speak about nepotism, although that is inarguably also at play always. Yeah. Um, if you have, if you know someone who knows someone, this is honestly one of your best ways. Um, but you still have to go through the step of actually applying in the company system so that your file can be created. Um, Michael. I mean, I've been thinking and talking about this for years, and still my mind is actually blown by the level of information and the way in which you've read this out to us. You really are a master of your craft, and you've given me so much to think about about the way in which I am applying to um, to my jobs. 
So before we close out this episode, as promised or threatened at the beginning of this episode, um, I asked you to retain a couple of, you know, tips for the end of uh, this particular segment of the higher career podcast so you can choose as many or as few as you like what is most critical is that i want any of our listeners who are still with us out there to be able to go away close the computer close the podcast application open their cv and say ah here's where the change should come in so off you go what do you think we should be doing okay so in terms of the cv itself and and we've touched on this a couple of times, Tom. Is it clean? Is it well organized? And are you consistent in your organization? That's the other thing that, mm. you know, sometimes you put the job name first. Sometimes you put the company name first. Is it well organized? These are things that you can do easily. Are your, are your uh, date formats consistent? We've seen all kinds of different date formats. Do you have dates on things? I, you know, it's, I know people think, well, you know, I shouldn't put dates on things because, you know, I've got gaps. Maybe I've taken leave. It, and for some countries, this is you know, not as much of a stigma as others. Mm-hmm. United States, you know, you've got a gap in your resume and that's a big red flag for no particular reason <laughs> other than that's just the way we do things here, right? Where other countries, you know, taking six months or a year off, a sabbatical or a, you know, maternity, paternity kind of situation. Yeah. Do you have the dates? Is it well organized? And is the, is the information on the CV relevant to the job that you're applying? This is where pride of sort of pride of ownership of your career, of your experience, you got to set that aside. Mm-hmm. Maybe you really did a great job doing this thing over here at this particular company, but is it relevant to what they're asking for? Maybe they're asking for a different kind of experience. If you don't have it, you don't have it. That's, that's one issue. Cause as I said early on, you don't want to falsify anything because people are actually checking the veracity of your, um, your, your information. Mm. And just because you did it, just because you, you know, maybe it was a great success in the moment. It has no relevance to the kind of position that you're doing. And the final thing that I'll toss out, and you've alluded to this, Tom, is, is the whole idea of networking to, for the position. Look to see if you know anybody who knows anybody who's worked at that company. The best thing in the world that you can find out is who's the actual recruiter. And sometimes, sometimes that'll be posted right with the job. Yeah. You'll be able to tell who the recruiter is. It's not so much that you start make a separate pitch to that person, but if they're on LinkedIn and they're associated with the job, connect with them. Tell them look, I just applied to this job and I'd like to connect with you and have you in my network, whatever the outcome. Mm-hmm. Non-threatening, non-demanding, because the, the, you know recruiters get these kind of things all the time. How do you distinguish yourself? All you want to do is make sure that there's a bit of name recognition if you can. Mm-hmm. Particularly if there's something about your career, and you, you talked about the extra long resume, right? Okay, I've got a fairly lengthy career. It's not obvious in radio necessarily, but I've got a fairly lengthy career. My resume deliberately is only three pages long, and that's still kind of long these days. That, that's literally half of my career life. Right. And so, you know, it, what if what I'm, the company is looking for is something that occurred at a different point? You know, how do you... That's the opportunity that you have to put those things forward without suddenly increasing your resume to seven pages, uh, which which won't be read. 
it won't be. The machine might read it. You know, the machine might be able to categorize all that kind of stuff, but a person's not going to look at it. They're not going to pay attention to something seven pages. They can't. They don't have the time, right? That's they. They just they, you know in in a you know in a situation where you're having to move right through those pieces of paper. Forget it. Forget it. They won't look at it. I'll stop there. There's there's three or four little little tidbits that uh, some resume writer somewhere is is cursing me because I just I just blew a hole in their business model by giving away their secrets. <laughs> well, they can get in touch with me and they can come on the show as well and drive traffic to their business. So, um, ooh, but I relish and I'm going to devour this episode again as a listener myself, um, even after I've edited as I do with most of them, because these top tips were absolutely delicious. Very yummy. Michael, uh, I will release you to walk your puppy, maybe get another cup of coffee and have some breakfast. It should now be just around 6 a.m. where you are. Again, thank you so much um, for uh, to be on the show, to share all of your wisdom. Uh, any of you out there in the audience still with us, I will leave all of Michael's contact details, um, his uh, online presence, his website in the description box, which is when you are in your podcast player, there's a little arrow key that will expand the episode. Uh, do get in touch with him if you uh, are in need of assistance. Uh, do look over his companies if you are a company yourself and you're looking for uh, really like world-class first-class software to help you in your recruitment efforts and uh, michael be on your way thank you so much for being on the show with us thank you tom i've enjoyed the conversation this was the sensational michael yinker everybody all the way from charlotte who oh has he blown your mind he certainly blew mine <laughs> Uh, and he was our first guest in this month of May 2022 that is dedicated to all things hacking growth. But to grow inside of a company, you first have to kind of get into it, which is why Michael was on the show with us today. Now, in two weeks from now, for our next episode, we have yet another stellar guest telling us how to actually navigate the very complex promotional mechanisms that companies of any size have in play, whether it is formal performance reviews, how to ask for a promotion um, effectively, and how to self-promote on a continuous basis in a way that doesn't feel sleazy or as if you were overly full of yourself. Uh, but for now, as always, we wish you a marvelous rest of your day. Let's go get it.